First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. And the question is, why do we suffer? First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Let's read those verses together. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. <clears throat> Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, <coughs> but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. <clears throat> I trust that by this point in the episode, you are very clear what Peter's message is. Don't be surprised when you suffer for doing good when you suffer for living right in these last days as an obedient Christian, as a child of God. But also, quite importantly, notice the sequence in verse 15 of what you should not suffer for. Listen to what he says. He says, let none of you suffer as a murderer, thief, evildoer, or meddler. The list goes from the most grievous offense, taking the life of a fellow human being, to taking advantage of and depriving a fellow human being by stealing from them, to criminal offenses and general evil, to seemingly harmless meddling. I don't need to explain the sin of murder or theft or doing evil. There are even laws of the land to deal with those things. But we do need to be reminded, at least occasionally, not to meddle. King James Version says, not to be a busybody in other people's matters. To meddle is to interfere, to try and change or influence things that are not your responsibility, especially by criticizing in, <coughs> in a damaging or annoying way. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like something somebody else is doing, doesn't it? If people, so, so if you're thinking of this and you know, you're you're saying to yourself, you know, I, don't, I wonder why this group of people are not dealing well with me, why they've ostracized me, why they've shut me out. If they're doing that because you have been a meddler, you are not being persecuted for the Lord. 
Don't say, oh, this group of people, they're just persecuting me. No, you may be meddling. And we tend to meddle without even realizing that we're meddling. And we tend to meddle and justify it. We say, well, somebody has to say it, right? Don't we say that? Or we say, well, you know, it has to be told. Nobody else is saying this to this person, so I need to tell them. I need to interfere. I need to. God told me. <laughs> but when, when the word very clearly, very clearly says, don't be a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, and don't be a meddler, we should pay attention. So, keep that in mind. So, all right, let's return to our consideration of why we suffer for doing what's right, for doing good. My message this morning is not particularly on meddling. That's just for you to keep in mind. As far back as 2015, The Guardian reported that as many as 200 million Christians in over 60 countries around the world face some degree of restriction, discrimination, or outright persecution. That number has risen to more than 300 million now. From Syria, Iraq, Iran, Egypt, and Armenia, to North Korea, China, Vietnam, and Laos, from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka, to Indonesia, Malaysia, and Burma, from Cuba, Colombia, and Mexico, to Eritrea, Nigeria, and Sudan, Christians face serious violations of religious freedom. And persecution ranges from murder, rape, and torture to repressive laws, discrimination, and social exclusion. So as incredible as it may seem, and as contradictory as it sounds, and as impossible as it is to do this in our own strength, Peter states, the Word of God states, <coughs> that we are to rejoice when we suffer in these ways, since we are sharing in Christ's sufferings. When we suffer for the sake of Christ, when we are truly persecuted, not suffering some other way, when we are truly persecuted, we are called to think differently, to say to ourselves, I'm being insulted because I am a Christian. What a blessing to be so closely identified with Christ that the world treats me the same way that it treated him. That's what Peter is saying that we should do. How in the world can we do that in our strength? We desperately need the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to rejoice in suffering. The world sees that command. The world sees that statement and says, what a, what a terrible thing. You shouldn't rejoice in your suffering. But the Word of God says, rejoice in your suffering because you have been treated the same way that Christ was treated. And in knowing that, in recognizing that, in appropriating that, we say, thank you, Lord, 
for what you have done. Because the focus of our suffering is not our suffering. The focus of our suffering becomes Christ's suffering. And we remember what he has done for us. So we praise the Lord. This morning, I want to remind us of three important truths about suffering that we need to keep in mind so that when we consider verse 17 that speaks of the judgment of God and then the closing point from verse 19 about trusting God, we would say it's because we have these specific understandings about suffering. These three these three truths regarding suffering are to get us to think correctly about suffering and dispel any false thinking, false sort of conclusions that we may have come to about our own or other believers' suffering. So the first truth is this. Our suffering is not to atone for our sins. Now, and I'm not talking about only, you know, the way that we start to think about this. So I said earlier that the Bible is speaking about rejoicing in the suffering that comes when we are persecuted for Christ. Not, not other kind of suffering, not because you've been a meddler, right? But when you think about suffering, many times we start to think about our general suffering. Oh, I'm sick. It must be because I sinned. And God is punishing me to atone for, to pay the price for my sins. Right? Don't we think like that? And maybe, maybe, maybe you won't say that out loud. But we think about that for ourselves and we think about that for other people. When somebody is suffering tremendously, and, and we have plenty of examples in the word of God, people's response is, what was the sin? Who sinned? What was your sin? That's what the accuser said to Job. What was your sin that you have to suffer like this? See, Peter has made it clear in chapter 3 verse 18 that Christ has already suffered once and for all for all our sins. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. We're not coming to God because we have paid the price for our sins. There is no additional price to be paid when we repent of our sins. When we repent of our sins, we are appropriating what Jesus has done. We're saying because Jesus paid the price, because his blood was shed, because his blood cleanses me, because he covers me over, I can come into the presence of God. We are not saying because I am good, because I am holy, because I have done all the right things, because I have paid the price, I can come into the presence of God. No. So the word reminds us Christ has already paid the price. Repentance appropriates that. And then we are able to come to the Lord so that we do not, and we, we tend to do this, we do not have to think of our suffering as a punishment for our sins. Now, keep in mind, this is about those that would repent for their sins. Unrepentant sin has its own set of consequences. Even 
Repented sin has a consequence, but it does not require a payment. There's a difference. Do you understand what I mean when I say that? If you have any doubts on that, feel free to follow up on that. I'm not spending all that time, too much time on that point. <coughs> but the point that I want to make to you is this. When sin has a consequence, some impact, some result, some, some situation that takes place, you have to deal with that consequence, some hurt that has taken place, some damage that has happened. You have to restore that. You have to take care of that. You have to do restitution, reparation, whatever there may be. There is a consequence to sin that has to be addressed. You can't ignore it. You can't simply say, well, I repent of the sin and therefore the consequence of the sin is also removed. No, the consequence of the sin has to be dealt with. If you've committed murder, there may be a sentence that you have to you know, undergo. You may repent of it. You may come to the Lord and say, Lord, I repent of this sin, but you may still serve a jail sentence. So there is a consequence to the sin, but there is no payment of self that you have to make to be able to come to the Lord. That's the difference. So our suffering is not to atone for our sins, right? The second truth is that our suffering is not to make us worthy of heaven. We were at lunch the last Sunday, a group of us from church, many times, you know, whoever's around, we'll just go to lunch together. And we were this large group at lunch, and this couple walked up, and they were like, are you all from a church? You know, and the, the lady came up and said that, and they were just chatting with us. And then the gentleman was telling us the story of how they met. And he said that his first wife had passed away uh, with dementia, and uh, you know, he had cared for her for many years, and so on. And he told his hairdresser, uh, and the hairstylist, hair cutter, that uh, this had happened, you know. And she said to him, oh, that means that you have a place in heaven because you cared for your wife in this way. Meaning what? Your suffering, your ordeal, your trial has made you worthy of heaven. And he said, oh, I couldn't let that go. So he brought tracts and shared the gospel with her and said, no, no, that's not the way you get into heaven and explained all these things to her and so on. And then he said, so then what happened was pretty soon after that, she said, well, I don't know quite about all these things, but I do know another person who's just like you, who's a Christian just like you. And she gives me tracts and talks about these things too. And she said, the two of you should meet. And they ended up meeting and getting married, right? And so, and then six months later, this lady, this hairstylist, also gave her heart to the Lord. So he's telling us this story at lunch, but he said, but the point that I want to make to you from that story is this idea that the world thinks that if you go through hardship, that if you've gone through suffering, that if you have endured stuff, and you know this, you know, sometimes even, even in a, you know, inadvertently you sort of think this, oh, this person has suffered so much. Surely God's going to bless them. Surely, surely they'll, they'll, they'll have something better, right? If you've suffered so much in this life or in the next life, you, you'll be okay, 
Right? We, we sort of have that, that feeling, that, that thought, that statement. And people will say these kinds of things. But our suffering is not making us worthy of heaven. The Bible doesn't say, here's the measure of suffering. If you hit 90%, you're in. It doesn't give us those kinds of measures. It doesn't tell us that kind of way to come to God. It says there's only one way. There's only one way in which we would come to know the Lord Jesus and be joined with him for eternity. It's because we would accept what he has done for us on the cross. That we would receive his sacrifice. That we would understand <coughs> that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's not an easy consolation when we're going through suffering. And it doesn't matter what kind of suffering. It could be a, you know, a, just some small little paper cut even. But, you know, and, or it could be something horrendously difficult. When we're going through the suffering, it doesn't have any consolation to be able to tell somebody, oh, but think of the glory that's coming later. As if, you know, that it sort of, it's not easy to think like that. But the reason we are able to even make that statement or come to the word that tells us that is because the suffering is not to get us points. The suffering is not to get us into heaven. The suffering happens. But in the midst of that suffering, we say, Lord God, I will continue to worship you and let your name be glorified. You see, it's not that God compensates us for our suffering on earth by taking us to heaven or by blessing us or by giving more to us or by saying, oh, you suffered this much, I'll give you this. Then you'll forget about your suffering. That's the way that we think. God's not doing that. And we can't judge God by our notions. It's not fair, God. It's not fair. Look at this person. They're not suffering at all. They seem to have everything. I'm suffering like crazy. Why? God doesn't owe you a response on that to say, well, yeah, you're right. Next week, I'll, I'll make it all correct. That, that's not what God's saying. He says, look, all of these things will happen. But in the midst of it all, are you going to compare or are you going to look up? You've probably heard the people say, oh, she suffered so much on earth, I'm sure God has a place for her in heaven, suggesting that a just God must have to do this. But we define God's justice by our terms of justice. We define God's response by our way of thinking. And the Bible is always calling us out of ourselves out of our frame of mind, our perspective, our point of view, and saying, have the mind of Christ. Think about things in such a way as the Lord would think about this. Which brings us to our third truth. Our suffering is to purify our faith. Our suffering is to purify our faith. 
Remember what we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's the statement? You're being purified. Your faith is being tested. You're being cleansed. There's a burning away of all that should not be there so that you will be found pure before the Lord. But not so that you may boast in your purity, but so that you would glorify God. That's the message that is being conveyed. That's the message that is being so powerfully communicated to us. See, suffering has a way of focusing our attention on what really matters. Right? When we're suffering in some way, when something is coming at us, you're not thinking about, you know, the gutters that need to be cleaned on the house. You know, maybe that's causing your suffering. Then you would think of that. But you know what I'm saying? It has a way of focusing your attention. All of a sudden, nothing else in the world matters. Everything is all focused on this area of suffering. Right? Suffering strips away everything that is unimportant. Suffering clarifies our priorities. And it clarifies our loyalties. Suffering has a way of purifying us for the sake of the Lord. We become those vessels that are being cleansed, cleaned for the Master's use. And so that's the purpose of the Lord. That's why He does it. That's why He allows it in our lives. If we never suffered, I, I mean, I'm going to make the statement and already you're thinking. But if we never suffered in our lives, what would our lives look like? How would we be? Do you think, oh yeah, no, that would be much better? If we never suffered for anything, what do you think? Do you think, oh, that, that would be much better? I would be so much happier. I don't know. I'm not sure. Because if we never suffered, and we're coming to this in just a second, we would not pay attention to the Lord. Peter makes a sobering point regarding God's judgment in verse 17. And just before we read that verse, again, all these points that I've just made are to be kept in mind as you think about this. Verse 17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. You know what our response is? Or our way of thinking is? God, things have become so bad. And there is evil and so much bad in the world. Judge them, Lord. 
Come quickly, Lord. There's so much darkness. Judge them, Lord. You know what the Bible says? Judgment. You start calling for judgment. You start calling for the, for the clarifying work of God. Guess where it begins? Right here in the household of God. You start calling out for judgment, be careful. You start saying, God, you know, look at all this un injustice. Look at all this stuff that's happening. You got to do something, God. God says, okay, sure. Because you see, the judgment of God in the earth today is different from the final judgment that is to come. What Peter is saying in verse 17 is, those who reject the gospel, those who disdain what the Lord has done, those who neglect the things that the Lord has provided for them now, will face a final judgment in which that decision that they have done, made, that choice that they have taken, will lead to the final judgment to say, whether they are to be with the Lord for eternity or not with the Lord for eternity. And that is far worse than any judgment that the Lord could bring on them in the earth right now. You don't need to worry about praying for God's judgment on the terrible and the sinners and the unrighteous in the world today. There is a judgment that's coming. And the Bible speaks about the judgment as such for believers, where it is really a review of what you have done for the Lord and how you've obeyed his commands as you have walked in the earth. And so the judgment of God in that sense, that great throne judgment, is to say, here's what you have done for the Lord, not here are your sins and here are the things that you, you know, didn't do right and therefore you're out of my sight. The judgment of God in that regard is to say, here's what you've done for the Lord and here are the rewards that come from it, right? And so there's that for believers. But the judgment of God in the earth as such really is for believers now so that we may be set right. So if you're praying for judgment, if you're praying for the act of God, if you're praying for the hand of God to be manifest, remember that what he really does is to cleanse the household of God, is to cleanse the church, is to allow the church to be purified. Why? Because his purpose is to return for a pure and spotless bride. He's not saying, I'll try to purify the unrighteous until such time that they can then be saved. He rather gives them the gospel message through his ministers of reconciliation, us, the, those, who have those who go to share the gospel. He's giving people the opportunity to respond to the call of God and be saved. But to those who believe... To those who are saved, he says, I will cleanse you and purify you and put you through fire and you will suffer and you will suffer persecution and you will have people coming against you 
and you will have all this stuff in this earth. Why? So that your priorities can be set right. So that your focus is very clear. So that you will depend on me. So that you will become pure and spotless. So that when I return, oh, you're ready. We already talked about it. That if you knew that the Lord was returning tomorrow, you wouldn't have to do anything different today. But that requires us to be sanctified, to be made pure, to be made blameless before him today. That he would be doing this work in us. When you're going through hardships, some hardships are because of our own doing. We make stupid mistakes and we make decisions and choices that end up having consequence. You have to quickly repent and go to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't deal with my spouse with understanding. I didn't go, I went to a place that I should not have gone to. I did something that I should not have done. I said something, and, and there's a consequence from it. Oh Lord, I'm suffering because of that. Please forgive me and please ease this suffering. Fine. But if you're suffering in other ways and nothing that you did and when, when the disciples came to Jesus and said, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus said, neither. But this is happening so that the power of God will be manifest and will be evident. The work of God will be evident. So there could be all sorts of different reasons. There are also times and when, you know, when Jesus was ministering that there were clearly things of suffering that were caused by the devil and, and demons and spiritual war. And so Jesus casts out demons and does that. So we have to be discerning of the causes of suffering and the reasons for it and why it's happening. And if something is persisting, then there may be a need for us to rebuke rather than simply repent. There's all sorts of reasons or points where we need to be doing this in a different way or, or uh, uh, responding differently to the different causes. However... The point that I want to make to you is this. Through it all, we want to be able to say, God is willing to allow his dearly loved children to suffer under his current judgment in order to purify and rescue them from the final judgment. Those who reject Christ will experience far worse is what Peter says. But we don't have to be worrying about that. That's not our focus. We're not trying to condemn those. And we're not trying to come against them. We're trying to say to them, know the Lord Jesus. Come to him. Be rescued. Be saved. Why does judgment or, or purification of the Lord begin with the household, with the family of God? Because God is preparing his bride. But here's the thing. The process of purification begins with the individual, but it is also corporate. It affects the individual, but in affecting the individual, it may affect the corporate body, the body of Christ. As members of the body of Christ are set right, the whole body is also impacted. And this has happened for centuries, but you may notice this even more so in the recent past. There have been all these scandals in the body of Christ 
And one of the reasons that I believe that those take place or that happens is that the Lord works with the individual, works with the individual, brings the things to bear. And sometimes there may be a need, there may be a reason that because that person has not responded in the right way, that it is even revealed more publicly and the entire body is impacted. Does it create pain and suffering and problems? Absolutely. But through it, there's a cleansing that takes place. There's a purification, a sanctification that takes place. And the body of Christ as a whole is made whole. Right? That's what we pray for. That's what we look to. That's what we believe for. If that were not the case, we would be cancerous. The body would be cancerous. It would just spread. And like those malignant tumors, it would affect the whole body so that we deteriorate. Instead, the Lord does these surgical sort of works into the body to remove that which is not of His. Which means that we have to respond and apply the Word of God that we have heard by trusting God. You see, that's what that's how Paul, pardon me, that's how Peter <laughs> ends this passage. He comes to the very end of it and he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We continue to do good. We don't give up. We don't become weary of doing good. That's what the word tells us. Don't become weary of doing good. Because when we start to do good and suffering comes, we say, oh, this is too difficult. This is too tough to keep going like this. We become weary. We become tired. We become, it becomes difficult for us to continue. But the word says continue, persist, do it. Depend on the Lord. But when we don't become weary of, being, of doing good, we have the opportunity to trust God. We respond and apply. And as one commentary puts it, our suffering for doing good is meant to draw us to trust God more deeply to abandon our hope of finding satisfaction in anything apart from Him. It's our faith, our trust in Him, which our Father values in us. He values it so much that He's willing to allow us to experience great suffering to help us to grow fully dependent on him. I, you know, I mean, think about that. He's saying, look, I need you to come to the end of yourself. I need you to not think I can do it. I, you know, this, this much suffering, I, I, can, I can bear it. If it's this much, then maybe I'll turn to God. Right? He, he, he doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to say, Lord God, the moment that something starts to happen, oh, I depend on you, I run to you. I come to you. 
The little child doesn't, doesn't decide the level of problem that it's facing. It runs to the parent. We have to be people who will trust in God. Because as Peter points out, he is a faithful creator. Why use the word creator? Because as we've seen in the previous passages, he knows our frame. He knows how we are made. He knows what we are able to bear. He knows what we are able to confront. And so he gives us the strength to bear the load. He doesn't say, I allow this suffering so that you will be snuffed out. So that it'll be like the wick that is snuffed out or the, you know, the reed that is broken. No, he says, no, I know, I know who you are. I know what you can bear. He has created each one of us. That little baby that just is born to the oldest person in the world, doesn't matter. He's created each one of us individually, fearfully and wonderfully. And to that Lord, we can entrust our souls. Our spirits have been renewed. Our bodies are, are wasting away. But our souls, oh, we need to entrust our memories, our thinking, our will, our emotion, our everything that identifies us. We have to entrust that to the Lord and say, Lord, I trust you. I trust you. You see, when we are fully dependent on the Lord Jesus, then suffering is not the focus. When we are fully dependent on the Lord Jesus, we can encourage one another. Because, see, if, if I'm dependent on someone, something else, on anything else, on my resources, on some person, on who I know, whatever, you know, if I'm dependent on that, and you have a problem in your life and you're suffering, what will I tell you about? What I know about. I'll say, go to this person. Here, do this. Take this. Use this. And again, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that you should not share what you have. I'm saying, if that's where we are dependent, then that's what we will share. But if we are dependent on the Lord Jesus alone, that's what we will share. That's who we will point to. That's who we will give to someone else. What we have received, what we depend on, what we rely on is what we will give. That's what the Lord is calling us to. So this morning, now, as we complete, so we're going to come into 1 Peter chapter 5, which is the last chapter of this epistle, and then it goes into 2 Peter. And this theme of suffering will show up again, but he almost sort of completes this thought about suffering through these first four chapters of 1 Peter. So we're not coming back to this. If you were getting tired of suffering, you know, and you were... And you were like, when is he going to get off this? You know, we're going to come into some passages here that, that will really help us to continue to move and to depend on him and to look to see how the Lord strengthens us. The Lord doesn't just say, keep suffering, keep suffering, keep suffering. No, the rest of the passages that we're coming into speak very powerfully. I'm looking forward to some of these scriptures that speak very powerfully of how the Lord 
you know, strengthens us and what he does to build us up and the word that he gives us and the fellowship that we have and the promises. And I mean, it's just wonderful. But don't forget these lessons on suffering. Don't let them be something that you are surprised by. Don't let suffering be something that you are surprised by. Instead, let these truths, let these words continue to encourage and hold you. Let us trust in the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that, Lord, you have asked us to rejoice in suffering, which, Lord, seems so difficult. And, Lord, when we think of 300 million Christians around the world suffering for your sake, no, not, not suffering for anything else, but suffering persecution, true persecution. Lord, it seems incredible to say that they should rejoice in their suffering. But Lord, help us to understand it. Help us to comprehend it. Help us to trust in you. And as we do that, Lord, I thank you that you are faithful. That, Lord, we can trust we can, Lord, be totally confident that you know what we're going through and you will do what is right. So we trust in you together today. In Jesus' name, amen.